Good morning. My name is Greg Johnson. The scripture reading this morning comes from the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. For God never said to any angels what he said to Jesus, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And God also said, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he brought his supreme son into the world, God said, Let all of God's angels worship him. Regarding the angels, he says, He sends his angels like the wind, his servants like flames of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, We are in the second week of our series on the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews can be quite difficult if you just kind of try to pick it up and read it. Um, But it is a wonderful, wonderful work. And my hope is to give you sort of a key ring so that when you pick it up on your own, you have some keys that can sort of unlock this book for you. Um, I've encouraged you, and I'll do it again, to be in the book on your own. Um, As in your own times in the Word and with the Lord, I encourage you to be drawn to the book of Hebrews, to be reading it on your own. Um, I'm spending my entire week in it, and it is a blessing, so I'd invite you into that blessing as well. But hopefully through this sermon series, we can give you some keys on your key ring that can sort of unlock this book for you. And so today, we're going to begin with a video. Now, this video is a satire of another video. And I'm going to show you the video, and I want you to see if you can tell what this video that I'm about to show is satiring. All right? So go ahead and roll that, guys. You know this video is satiring at all? Does anyone remember this? Yes, yes, the commercial. All right? The commercial of Sarah McLaughlin. So I think this commercial made Sarah McLaughlin more famous than any of her music ever did where she sits with pets and, you know, endangered or abused pets and asks for money to help support the pets. And so this commercial came out sort of in the late 90s or early 2000s, and then they played as a backing track to the commercial showing all sorts of helpless animals. They played Sarah McLaughlin's Angel as a backing track. And um, I, I play this video and reference this song simply because I feel like the 90s, I was a 90s child. I was born in 85, and so most of my life growing up was spent in the 90s. And I feel like the 90s were sort of this time of a fascination of angels. You had Sarah McLaughlin's Angel that came out in 1997. And then you also had this TV series called Touched by an Angel that ran through the 90s into the early 2000s. You had this iconic romance movie, City of Angels, starring Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan, where angels and humans hook up, and I think that came out in 97. So 97 was the year of angels, apparently. And then you also had these horrible things, and I don't know why people would spend money on them. Precious moments, because neither are they precious nor are they moments. So I don't, I don't get it. I really don't understand why people would shell out money for these hideous things. But they also had uh, angels. So, so did I break somebody's heart with that comment? But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, uh, I, I feel like the 90s were this time of this fascination with angels. And I bring up this angel fascination 
Because this audience who received the letter of the Hebrews also had a fascination with angels. And not only did they have a fascination with angels, but it got to the point where they were actually worshiping angels and venerating angels in a way that they should not have been. And what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to write to this group of Christians and he's going to tell them why they ought not to be worshiping angels and why they ought to be worshiping Jesus over and above and to the exclusion of angels. Now, what I love about the Bible is that it's not like God set out to write this textbook. It's not like he wrote a systematic theology textbook that's a thousand pages thick and gave a point and then subpoints and then he gave us another point and subpoints. All he did, which I, well, all, as if it's nothing, it was amazing. What he did was he inspired these people to simply write to believers who were gathered in groups addressing certain issues and challenges that they were facing as a community of Christ followers at their time and in their place. And so the Bible is what we call practiced theology because it's what were the challenges that they were facing and the writers of the Bible are addressing that. And one of the challenges that this group of Christians that the author of Hebrews is writing to is that they are worshiping angels when they ought to be worshiping Jesus. This group of believers is actually a group of Jewish believers who have the whole history of the Jews behind them, but they're also endorsing and believing and proclaiming that Jesus is the promised Messiah, Lord and King. And because they are believing and proclaiming Jesus as King, they're experiencing pressure from the culture and persecution and the idea of lopping off Jesus and going back to their Judaism is really attractive. And the author of Hebrews is saying, keep up the faith. Don't give up on Jesus. He is the promised Messiah. You are correct. Keep worshiping him. Don't give up on the faith. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing as he tells the believers that receive this letter why Jesus ought to be worshiped and not angels. So what this author of Hebrews is going to do is he is going to lay out three reasons why we ought to worship Jesus over and above and to the exclusion of angels. Now, this message is a note-taker's dream, all right? Because this is three reasons, and they all start with an R, connected to three stories that all begin with a C. Oh, it's the most amazing outline ever, okay? So just so you know, note-takers, this is a dream, all right? So if you, maybe you even start taking notes today because it's an outline that's just almost too good to be true, okay? So three reasons... Pirates also like this sermon. Three reasons um, why we worship Jesus over and above and to the exclusion of angels. All right. The first reason is that Jesus is the revealer of who God is. Jesus reveals to us who God is. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, the son, Jesus, radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. And when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows that the son, here's his point, is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. And then he's going to kind of go into this little thing about God and his son. He says, for God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus. God said to Jesus, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God also said, I will be his father and he will be my son. So the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus ought to be worshiped over and above and to the exclusion of angels because Jesus is the one who reveals to us who God is because Jesus is God's son and God never said to any of the angels, you are my son. Now, a statement about that verse five, all right? This is not a statement of chronology. This is a statement of status. 
God is saying to his son, this is my boy. This is the one. That's my boy. Angel, he never says to any angels, that's my boy. But he says to his son, Jesus, that's my boy. It's a statement of status, not of chronology, because we would affirm that Christ always was, always is, and always will be the son. It's never like he wasn't the son and then he became the son. He never became the son. He always eternally was, is, and will be the son. So this is God saying, this is my boy, because he shows you who I am. So Jesus ought to be worshipped over and above and to the exclusion of angels because he is the revealer of who God is. And because and now the story that he connects that to is Christmas. So that's our first C story that's connected to this reason of him being the revealer of who God is. Think about Christmas. The author of Hebrews is going to reference Christmas. He says, and when he brought his supreme son into the world, God said, let all of God's angels worship him. Think about the story of Christmas. Who's being worshipped? The sun, not angels. And what are angels doing? They're worshipping the arrival of God's son, Jesus. They're not the ones being worshipped. Angels aren't the ones in that manger. They are the ones who are worshipping the baby in the manger and saying, Gloria and Alleluia, and praise be to God, our newborn king. And so we worship Jesus over and above and to the exclusion of angels because he reveals to us who God is by coming to us as a human on Christmas. And even the angels, when he comes to us, worship him. That's why we worship Jesus over and above and to the exclusion of angels. And we worship Jesus over and above and to the exclusion of angels because he is also the ruler. That's our second reason why we worship Jesus. Here's how the author of Hebrews puts it. He says, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. He says, you love justice and hate evil. Therefore, O God, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. Who do we anoint with oil? The king. Who's in charge? The king. Who's the ruler? The king. And God anoints his son with oil, saying, this is the ruler. You are the ruler, and he is the ruler over all of creation. And that's our C story connected with this, our reason. Jesus is the ruler over all of creation. And here's how the author of Hebrews talks about it. He says, he also says to the son, God says to his son, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with your hand. They will perish, but you will remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. You will fold them up like a cloak and discard them like old clothing. But you are always the same. You will live forever. That's what God says to his son. There's a YouTube video. And I really wish we had time to watch it, but it's 11 minutes long. So we don't have time to watch it. But I'm going to walk you through it. So there's this science nerd and his name is Cody. And he is going to illustrate in this video the nearest star to the earth that's not the sun, okay? So Cody begins on a high school football field, and that's where he's going to build his model of the nearest star. And so he's got the sun represented by a P. And so he places that P on a piece of paper and puts it on the football field. And then he marks out 2.3 feet. And he says, okay, if the sun was a P, the earth would be 2.3 feet away from the sun on the football field. And so he drops the earth. Now, if the sun was a P, the earth would be this tiny infinitesimal dot that he marks on the piece of paper because it's so small. And then you can see he also marks the moon on that piece of paper by the earth. And you can see close to that tape measure how tiny this distance really is. Now, in actuality, the distance between the earth and the moon is 1.3 light seconds, okay? That little tiny distance that's a fraction of an inch on this model is the furthest away that any human being has ever traveled from this earth. 
So the furthest man has ever gotten away from the earth is that tiny little fraction of an inch away from the earth. So this is all 2.3 feet away from the sun according to this scale now. Okay? You following me so far? So he, he, now he's going to drop Jupiter. So he walks 12.8 feet away from his pea sun to Jupiter, and he drops Jupiter, which is a, uh, a seed. All right, so he puts Jupiter down. That's 12.8 feet away from the sun. And he keeps building his model. And now he's going to drop Pluto, which is no longer a planet. Never get over that. So he drops Pluto. Uh, and Pluto, if the sun was a pea, he, Pluto would be 97 feet away from the sun. So he feeds out his tape measure, and he drops Pluto 97 feet away from the sun. Now what he's going to do, now that he's got all the planets laid out, is he's going to drop Voyager 1. And Voyager 1 is the furthest uh, man-made object away from the Earth. Okay, So now, in order to get to Voyager 1, he's got to walk 317 feet away from his pea sun, according to this scale, to drop Voyager 1. So Voyager 1 is kind of on the fringes of, I'm told, on the fringes of the solar system right now. It's kind of leaving our solar system. So according to this model, the distance from the sun to the to the to the to Pluto is about a third of a football field, but the solar system would be about the size of the football field. So let's just say, according to this model, the solar system is the size of a football field. Okay. Now he's going to show us where the nearest star is to the Earth. So according to this model, with the solar system the size of a football field, he leaves the state and he drives from Utah, crosses the state line into Idaho, and drops the nearest star to the Earth. 125 miles away from his pea sun, according to this model size. Isn't that incredible that the solar system is the size of a football field that we, we would have to go 125 miles away to drop the nearest star? And I looked this up recently, and the, the diameter of our galaxy alone is 100,000 light years. That's just our galaxy. Why do I say all this? I say all this because the universe is incomprehensibly big. I love to think about it because I just, I can't imagine it. I can't think of something that big. And when you get to fold up the universe, whenever you decide and throw it away like it's worn out in an old cloak, you get to be the ruler. <laughs> right? When you decide, yeah, I'm done with this. It served its purpose. Now it's time for new creation. Fold it up, throw it away like it doesn't even matter. You get to be the ruler of creation. And this is why we worship Jesus over and above and to the exclusion of creation because he can fold up the universe whenever he wants and throw it away and start new creation at his word. That's the ruler over all of creation. Now, there's something really profound that the author of Hebrews is going to do as he's talking about creation. And that relates to our status as humanity in creation, okay? So God creates. And then as his crowning achievement on creation, he puts humans on this earth. And we know that humanity is the crowning achievement of God's creation because he gave humanity this extremely special job. Okay? And this is in the, we call it the creative mandate in Genesis 1.28. Here's the job that God gives to humanity. He says, but then God blessed humanity and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. The NIV uses the word rule. It says rule over all of creation. What the creative mandate affirms to us is that Jesus, as the supreme ruler over creation, gives humanity the job of being his sub-rulers over creation. 
So we as humanity were created to be his sub-governors, his sub-rulers over creation. And that was incredible, but it still wasn't enough for us because we stretched out in an act of usurpation and rebellion to try to seize the status of supreme ruler himself. And in disobeying God in that way, we brought sin into the world, separated ourselves from God, and condemned all of creation and all of humanity to death. So God gives us this incredible status as his sub-rulers over creation. And we say, nah, we want to be the ruler himself. And we stretch out and try to seize it and bring sin into the world. And here's the most amazing thing. He said, God's not content to let things be that way. And so what he does is he sends his son Jesus to be our redeemer. And this is our third R. And to redeem creation and to redeem humanity back into their status as sub-rulers again. Hey, this is what the author of Hebrews says. Now, he's going to get into territory that ought to, when you read it, blow your mind. And you ought to go, he's going to throw a plot twist in that makes you go, I never saw that coming. Like, wow. Okay, so here's what he's going to do. He says, and furthermore, it's not angels who will control the future world we're talking about. Well, if angels don't control the future, then who does? Jesus, obviously. For in one place, the scriptures say, now, he's going to quote the psalmist and what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's quoting the, the psalmist and the psalmist in this verse is just sort of marveling at creation and at the status that humanity holds within that creation as sub-rulers under the supreme ruler. So the, the, the psalmist is just like blowing his mind about how he is the, a, a, a sub-ruler under the ruler of creation. So in one place, the scriptures say Psalms and Psalms, the scripture says, what are mere mortals that you think about them? Or the son of man, that means human one, or a human one that you should care for him. Yet for a little while you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. And now what he's going to do that he quotes the psalmist talking about humanity is he's going to take that and apply it to the son Jesus, the ruler over all creation, the redeemer. He says, you gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. What we do see, here's his point, what we do see is Jesus who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing is he is saying, humanity screwed up. And we sinned in our usurpation trying to become the supreme ruler and we fell. But God sent his son to take on the role of his fallen humanity and to redeem them back into their spot as sub-rulers underneath the supreme ruler. Isn't that incredible? So all three of these stories converge, creation, Christmas, and the cross into our supreme Lord and King who became one of us so that he could redeem us back into our spots as sub-rulers of creation. So when he says, and furthermore, it's not angels who will control the future world we're talking about. We know it's Jesus. But what he's saying is it's not just Jesus. It's Jesus alongside of his redeemed humanity back into their spot as sub-rulers over creation. Isn't that profound? That this future doesn't belong to angels. It belongs to Jesus. And because Jesus loved us enough to redeem us, now we get to be his co-heirs to the promise. And now we get to be alongside of him into eternity. That's who the future belongs to. Isn't this amazing? And this is why I call this, this is why I call this the bellhops at God's Hilton. Because now the author of Hebrews says, if that isn't enough for you, I'm going to put angels in their place. Because I've made the point that the future belongs to Jesus, co-heired by people that he's redeemed. And if that wasn't enough for you, let's put angels in their proper place. And this is why I call this the bellhops at God's Hilton. Because angels are bellhops. 
They're servants. And here's what he says. And Kyle read this. Therefore, angels are only servants. Spirits who await God's beck and call, who are his errand boys, his bellhops. Spirits sent to care for whom? People who will inherit salvation. If that wasn't enough for you, that the future belongs to Jesus alongside of his redeemed humanity, on top of that, angels are servants. They're bellhops who are dispatched by God at his beck and call and at his word to serve people, his redeemed humanity. That's the proper place of angels. So why, Hebrews, are you worshiping angels when they're merely errand boys, when they're bellhops, when they're servants awaiting God's beck and call to serve humanity to whom future belongs alongside Jesus, our Redeemer? I think that the hierarchy in many people's minds goes like this. If, if, if you just ask anybody like who knows a little bit about the Bible, I think they would give you this hierarchy. Okay? They would say, God at the top, unquestioned, that's obvious, angels second, and humanity at the bottom. Okay? But what the author of Hebrews is saying, no, that's wrong. You've got to flip the bottom too. He's saying the hierarchy goes like this. It goes, God, humans, angels. So why are you worshiping angels when they're at the bottom of the hierarchy? When they're God's bellhops and his servants who serve people who inherit salvation. And so these three stories converge. Christmas, that God is our, has revealed us, or has revealed himself to us in his son. Creation, and that Jesus is the ruler over all creation, and that he redeems his fallen humanity back into their spot as sub-rulers over all of creation. This is why we worship Jesus over and above and to the exclusion of angels. This is why we worship Jesus. Now, I doubt that any of us are tempted to worship angels. Or I doubt that any of us are, you know, caught up in like a new age movement where we have angel statues in our home and they're like our objects, objects of worship. Um, if you do come talk to me, <laughs> I'd love to talk to you. All right. But I doubt that this is really a problem for us. So what does all this mean for us? Because we don't have an angel worship problem. What does all this mean? Well, I think for us, we can ask the question, who takes the place of Christ in our own lives? This audience that the letter of Hebrews was written to, they were worshiping angels when they should have been worshiping Jesus. And so the question for us is, who or what are we worshiping when we ought to be worshiping Jesus? Who's taking Jesus' spot in our lives? Who or what are we worshiping when we ought to worship Jesus? Now, I realize this answer is going to be different for each and every one of us in this room. All right, But I think there is one universal thing that I can kind of maybe go after and press on this morning. As a former youth pastor and as a pastor now, it really concerns me as I kind of look at our culture because I feel like we are training our children to worship their future. And we are training our children to worship their future success. Because as I look out over our culture, I see that no cost is too great and no price too high when it comes to something that could potentially benefit our children and their future and their future success. All right. I see a culture that's willing to sacrifice everything for a, su- a successful future for our kids because we want more than anything else for our kids to be a productive member of society, to you know, get into a good school, make a decent living someday, and contribute to our society, which is all good things. But the problem is, is that it becomes the highest aim and the object of our worship when it ought to be Jesus. So 
maybe I'll stop spanking for a moment and we can look at this hum- humorously, okay? So there's a website called the Babylon Bee, which is like the onion for Christians. And I love this headline. After 12 years of quarterly church attendance, parents are shocked by their daughter's lack of faith, right? It's funny because it points at something that's actually happening, right? Well, we brought our daughter to church four times a year. Why isn't she a Christ follower? Maybe because you sent the message that so many more things were more important than following Jesus, right? And then there's another Twitter account called Youth Group Boy, which is another satirical account. And this is like, you know, what a a youth group kid would say, okay? So he tweets out this, hashtag, I can't come to church because it won't get me into college or into a fancy league of a sport I'll never play as an adult. You get the point, right? I think we live in a culture that worships future and future success and trains our children to do so when we ought to be worshiping Jesus. Now, maybe I can just say it this way, rather than just sort of continuing with the polemics, I can just sort of go like this. When you see Jesus in the light of the author of Hebrews, and when you see him as our revealer who shows us who God is and came to us as one of us on Christmas, and as our ruler over all of creation, and someday we'll fold up the universe at his word and just throw it away like an old cloak, and as our redeemer who took on our position to redeem us back into our slots as co-heirs of the, of the eternal life with him, when you see him, all of that other stuff that we spend our time on and that we spend our time worshiping seems so trivial, and infinitesimal compared to who Jesus is. I think when we see Jesus in the proper light, all that other stuff ought to just crumble and fall away and say, yeah, this is so not worth it compared to our revealer, ruler, redeemer, Messiah, King, and Lord. This is who we worship. 